Hi, everyone, and thanks again for joining me for another one of my YouTube pod being podcast, whatever you would call it, uh, things uh, on my GaudiMitzBest22.com uh, blog. And today, uh, hopefully, let's say a quick prayer that the Internet gods will be smiling on us because we are doing a four-person Zoom link from my farm's sketchy Internet, so we'll see if it hangs on. Uh, two of the guests today you, uh, you guys have seen before on my, on my channel, uh, Dr. Rodney Hauser, I feel like this is like on the Brady Bunch thing here with the sort of, you know, all the pictures. Uh, but the, the thing is, Rodney's a professor of theology at DeSales University, chair of the department, at least for now. Uh, you know the drill. People know Rodney. Adrian Walker down below, uh, professor of theology at St. Patrick's Seminary, Menlo Park, California, which is near San Francisco. I'm hoping to be there Correct. next spring, next spring. Uh, uh, but the, the but the guest of honor, which Adrian suggested to me a few months ago, the guest of honor is Dr. Connor, Connor Cunningham. Many of you probably know Connor. I could go on and read to you a lengthy list of Connor's many credentials that would take about five to ten minutes. Uh, he is a, a, a brilliant guy. Uh, he is currently associate, unless it's been updated, Associate Professor of Theology, Faculty of Arts at, at, at the University of Nottingham in Theology uh, in the UK. Uh, I, I remember I did once I, I showed a video to my science and religion class that I taught to undergraduates for many years was uh, I think the video was called Did Darwin Kill God that you did with the BBC, Connor? Uh, and and I <laughs> that was great. The, the only bit, the, uh, the only two videos I showed routinely were from the BBC. One was yours. One was one by Roger Scruton. Oh, yeah. Called, called uh, Why Beauty Matters. Why Beauty also Matters, great. you know, in Scruton's inscrutable way. Uh, and anyway, uh, Connor is also um, uh, a, a prolific writer and publisher studied under Milbank and then Graham Ward and a few a bunch of other, but one of his areas of expertise that most interests us here today is in the, 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 the science and religion, science and theology. And, and the topic of today's conversation, once again, I never script these things, mainly because I'm really lazy. Uh, but the topic today is uh, the nature of modern science and, and its sort of role in the university. Uh, that's very generic, very open ended. Uh, but I, uh, Connor, do you have do you have anything you want to add to your biography before I turn it over to you to sort of give a, a, a sort of brief introduction to what you think the nature of modern science is? Uh, I don't care about my biography. Uh, uh, the first thing I'd say is I don't like the description science and religion. That's part of the problem. Bingo. Yes. Yeah, because the and is the abyss. And it will suck in any anything with integrity or validity or depth on either side of the equation, if you like. Science and the religion will both be straw, uh, simulacrum, if you like. Uh, and the only thing which will dominate is the and. So like theology and film, theology and nature, theology and whatever. It's the and that dominates. What you want is a theology of film, a theology of nature, a theology of sport, a theology of cooking, like Babette's Feast. You don't, the and is, is, the, is the abyss. It sucks everything in and nothing gets out. Oh, I couldn't. Semblance. You know, I couldn't agree more. I mean, for and I'll turn it over to Rodney and Adrian to pursue some questions as well. Uh, for, I once got a grant from the Templeton Foundation uh, to do science, religion, kind of stuff. 
And I remember I'd go to all of these conferences at St. Anne's College, Oxford, uh, dealing with science, religion, sorts of things. And, and that always bothered the heck out of me. Uh, it always seemed like trying to pound square pegs into round holes. Uh, and and I, well, I even coined the phrase the Templeton paradigm to describe the kind of conversation that was taking place that seemed to do violence to both the science and the theology uh, and, and left and, and the thing is, it left us with almost nothing except the kind of pablum of Anglican deistic rationalism. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I was left. The only reason I went is because I liked Oxford <laughs> and it gave me a free trip to Oxford. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I, I, I agree with that assessment uh, to that. end, Rodney, do you, do you have any sort of questions you want to lead in with here? Uh, no, I mean, I just think that's an interesting way to begin it is to call into question the very uh, right the, the way the whole thing is set up in the in the first place, right? Um, and it, it seems to me that yeah, I, I mean, it's just the word religion is is so ambiguous in itself, and and it's it's like Connor said, it's uh, it when it's when it's used, even like you, you say, what's the difference between theology and religion or whatever? You're already saying something about religion that that is already loaded in a, in a variety of ways um and i think it's just that socratic moment where you stand back and you say wait a second before we start this what is science what right. is religion what is theology because that's what we never do we start having the conversation without ever <laughs> establishing in advance what these things even mean and how complicated it is to define them uh, it's it's act we act as if it's an easy thing to say oh let's talk about the relationship between science and religion as if we understand already in advance what these things mean which I I, I don't think we do right and we and and we we also assume that they're sort of originally separate and it's up to us to sort of bring them together yeah, yeah. in that uh, abyssal space supposedly in the middle yeah. right which Connor was talking about just now yeah. No, it's good. But you, oh, yeah. you said set up. I think it, they're set up to fail. Yeah. Yeah. You want well, to explain? Religion, yeah, well, they're set up to fail because, as I said, they're simulacrum. But the, the, the point is, even even the word religion, Rodney's talking about that. I mean, religion just means to bind, right? So it's a functional thing. So football can be a religion. So, you know, soccer, baseball, if it binds people together, anything which binds is therefore functionally religion but you can have a theology of religion i suppose yes i suppose that might work yeah. but left to itself uh, in the way you were just saying i think it's um it's there be dragons yes be... yeah but i think adrian's point rather than coming no offense to him uh Rahner, renarian point where you have separate stuff and then trying to stick it together it's better to start off with union and differentiate and to look back in sense and i think that uh and first of all i just say with science i'm a normalist when it comes to science uh, as a term uh, i'm not a normalist when it comes to sciences so, as an umbrella term i don't believe science exists at all anywhere in the world i do believe chemistry exists i do believe biology exists i do believe physics exists high and low and all this sort of stuff i don't believe in science just like i don't believe in religion uh, so I, I don't really want to try and waste my time writing about two things I don't believe exist. You know, but I'm a normalist about both. Right. I mean, you yeah. have to remember. Uh, yeah. Adrian knows this. I'm sure you all know this. Um, you know, the word scientist was only coined in 1833. 
Wow. So in 1832, there were no scientists. And I mean, Darwin, for example, he, he refused it until he died. And it mm. became popular for funding purposes, really, and demarcation around the First World War for, for strategic reasons. They were all natural philosophers up to there. And I think they should be moving back to that because the word scientist is, is nonsense. And science as an umbrella term, sure, but only normally. Right. right. And <laughs> oh, go ahead, Adrian. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say that it's the same is the exact thing with religion. Right. It was uh, 18 whatever that, you know, Western Europeans went over and told Hindus that they were Hindus and they were practicing. Yeah. Religion, right. And they didn't yeah. have a word to, to, to equate with religion. They didn't. Have, you know, there was nothing in their in their languages that would that would mean the same thing. So it's very similar, it seems to me. Science is a modern invention. Religion is a modern invention, at least the way we use the words now. Yeah, and and I mean that I was just going to say that something uh, analogous applies to the notion of scientific method. I mean, this is not a an original point that I'm making at all, um, but it's it's pertinent to the discussion. That there there is no sort of one size fits all scientific method. Uh, they're they're just a bunch of people in different guilds that are having conversations around having around trying to figure stuff out together. And then they come up with all kinds of ways of doing that. Um, uh, and um, I, I'm not going to say that, that, that no unity is revealed there, but the unity is going to be revealed through the plurality of the practices Um not not through a kind of one size fits all that sort of drops down from somewhere, right? Well, yeah, I would say. Go ahead, Connor. No, I just think Adrian's fine on there. I mean, I think unity is discovered. Not it can't be a priori as a as a as a method. Here we are, univocal method, monolithic method, which is applicable everywhere. It's just a fiction, right? right. And the unity arises by the nature of discovery. Exactly. Where, where, you know, Chemistry comes into its own almost after the fact. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Which is very reassuring, right? Because it, it, uh, it, it th this is one of many, many, many signs that um, there's actually a common world that makes itself known in all kinds of ways. I mean, to us and through us. Yeah. yeah any disciplined form of knowledge its method is going to be determined by the nature of its object, right? And and, and so obviously there are going to be a, a, a multiplicity of objects that various disciplines are going to study, even under on this umbrella fiction called called science. So yeah, the, and so I, I I sometimes wonder if if the if the common denominator beyond simply they all are are in, in the process of trying to discover things, if there is a sort of common denominator in the modern consciousness of what creates this essentialized thing we call science, it is on the plane of philosophy, I think, that that they all evince what what we what we look at and call science is, is simply a multiplicity of different different diff, disciplines with a multiplicity of objects bonded together by a common naturalistic philosophy, hmm. a common set of secular, oh. naturalistic, reductionistic, philosophical assumptions. I mean, well, go ahead, Connor. I was, I was yeah, going go to point, I was going to point in your direction anyway, but go ahead. Just a quick point that I don't think that's quite right in that um, it's got to such a degree that science 
is bootstrapping itself to the point it doesn't have an object. It's mm. abandoned the mm. object. Right. So there isn't actually a, a to and fro, any relationship. So, for example, uh, if you say science always has an object, well, I don't think anyone's bumped into a string in string theory. <laughs> yeah. In fact, they self-consciously have eschewed empirical methods, back to Adrian's point. Right. And right. they don't see that as a loss. And there's a huge right. debate over this historically. Um, Adrian and I have talked about it, but it, it, it's amazing. There is no object. What they do a bit like Dungeons and Dragons or Sudoku is it has to be self internally self-consistent. Right, exactly. And they think, oh, bingo. Yeah. But they haven't, there's no rubber touch the touch the road. Yeah. So forget, I have to listen to politics programs all of them in time. And they get some panel on, they go, well, you know, but it's science. And I'm pulling my hair out going, what, what science? What, what do you mean by that? And our so apparent intelligent politicians and so forth have no clue because no one actually looks at it. And what science cleverly does these days, especially for funding streaming, you know, streams of funding and so forth, is that they thicken their brand. And what I mean by that, you know, thick description, you know, Gilbert Ryle's phrase made famous by Clifford Gertz, but the culture anthropologist, but the thick in the brand, it's like the way if I say the word Beatles to you, the Beatles, you don't think of insects, you think of a pop group, right? So the Beatles have disappeared, the insects have disappeared as a brand has thickened. And so we'll, we'll have scientists use things and that fools us into thinking there's an object. They're talking about quantum fields, right? Exactly. Not as ever, 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 anywhere in the world given a mathematically consistent definition of a quantum field. But right. we all think they're so quantum fields. Now, I'm all yeah. for quantum field theory. I'm not against it. But what I'm against is our naivete and thinking right. I can kick it down the road. I can't. There is no object. There right. are tools which are constructed which may be applicable in analytical terms, which may then reveal something about the world. Right. But I think there's something very happening about interesting happening, which Adrian and I talked about before, happening with these string theories and loop quantum gravity and all this sort of thing is that um, they're having to come back down to Earth to have, otherwise they get their P45. Do you know what a P45 is? No, British British thing. thing. Yeah, it's when, you, when, you, when you're fired. You can lose your job, you get your P45. Right. Oh. <laughs> right, so string theory is getting its P45 because uh, right. it's, it's had more funding than anything else in history. Yeah. And it's come up with least. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There ain't no object. And I'll give you a rundown of the history in a minute if you want, but I'll let Adrian in there. So well, no, no. I was just gonna just gonna sort of you know append a footnote to that. Um this is great, by the way. I it's it's uh I mean Connor and I talk a lot, but we, we don't usually zoom, we usually do it through email. So it's it's nice to actually, you know, see your face if you can call it if you can call this seeing. Um, I mean, has I'm, Zoom, I'm, I'm going to interrupt, Adrian. Has Zoom become a verb now? We're, we're, we're Zoom. Oh, everything in English, at least especially in American English, becomes a verb very quickly. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're going to we're going to and our way through through the intellectual life. See, we could we could make a verb out of and. No, I was just going to append a footnote to that, um, which I think is is an extraordinarily important point. And that is that um, I think there's always been a kind of unclarity in let's let's say modern science, you know, from from you know way back about the relationship between mathematics and physics, if you want to put it like that, you know. So Aristotle <laughs> distinguishes the two. Um, 
obviously what he means by physics is perhaps slightly different from what a lot of people today might might think physics is but still it's it's a kind of study of the natural world and and all of that it's about matter it's about motion etc cetera, etc cetera, right so i mean materially speaking we're we're talking about the same thing basically and and he's saying look physics isn't mathematics mathematics isn't physics and the reason is that physics precisely has to do with matter and motion um and it's it's not an easy question to sort of determine you know the extent to which and in what sense and with what sort of epistemological kind of charge you can math you can mathematicize uh matter in motion right? right that's a huge question but it but it seems like there's a real unclarity about that and one of the one of the ways that the unclarity goes or or is sort of resolved is in the direction of a kind of collapse of physics into mathematics and it seems to me that what connor is talking about is a kind of extreme form of that collapse right but but what's interesting is precisely that um th the physical sort of reasserts itself and says hey no 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 this isn't working guys this isn't what physics this can't be what physics is yeah can i just chime in i mean that's i love that adrian it's it seems to me that uh it, it's always a matter of leaving something really really important behind that's inconvenient when you're trying to mathematicize everything yeah, right right so it's uh yeah, yeah exactly yeah 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 yeah, right? yeah. yeah. so so it's it's like when you're putting your car back together hauser and there's bits and pieces you don't know what the hell to do with you just throw them aside <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i've had that experience by the way but yeah. but it, but we were i mean if, if, at one point i think we're going to maybe try to link this with kind of the modern university but but if you think right. about it all of the disciplines, of course, are chasing this this chimera, right? This uh, this thing called science, and all of them that then do the same thing. I mean, Larry and I were unfortunate enough to go to sort of ordinary Jesuit, you know, graduate programs where we never talked about God, because <laughs> no, <laughs> that's hard to talk about if all you want to talk about are like the facts of like whether as Howard Wass puts it, whether Abraham was an ass nomad or a camel nomad, right? You know, you so it was like we you get in class and we would talk about facts, like did Augustine say X about Y? But when you came down to the question of like, well, is does Augustine help us get to the truth of the matter of this or that, that that now gets like we, we don't that was an uncomfortable conversation because we had gotten so used to domesticating theology. Theology had become about theology. And not about God. And I think what we're saying here is there's something analogous about the way science well, has become right. about and there's no object. There's no object. Yeah, yeah. 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 And any in any way, I mean, what they call facts are like are like stills from a movie, except that you don't know what the movie is. <laughs> yes. So yes. Like yeah. the stills. And so there there, there there's yeah. a bit of there's a bit of a a, a kind of constructedness there that sort of weights things in a in a certain direction as well right yes yes absolutely yeah. but i think that theology became about theology came about theology uh even as harvas might have it uh, out of out of a disguised form of cowardice yeah right yeah i think that oh, you yeah. know if love drives out fear fear drives out love and i think uh, not only about god but about creation uh, right. And all that entails, and I think that 
there was a rear guard retreat, if you like, into again, we almost became like string theory. Yes. In that in that we could get our Eucharist here and our baptism here, Eucharist, and we, we did it all nice and consistent, but it wasn't telling me anything about the tree outside my window. Exactly. And so it became its own form of Sudoku. And I and I think that it was a form of cultural cowardice. And it almost like was produced totally. by the Yale, the Yale and the and the Wittgensteinian sort of you know language games and uh, and so forth, and I suppose Wittgenstein and Derrida and all that uh, rubbish uh, 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 infected the imaginations of theologians, and they thought, well, we can have our language game, right? So that's all right. So it's a sort of a ghetto, yeah, and exactly. I think it's still born and impoverished. Um, to, yeah, uh, to and we never have to embarrass ourselves by claiming that God has anything to do with the physical world. It's kind of like those pre, I mean, we've all heard the homily, right? Well, the real miracle, you know, the real, <laughs> yeah. care, the real miracle was the whatever, right? Um, as if it would be impossibly vulgar on God's part to sort of have anything to do with the physical world, either naturally or supernaturally. Right. Right. And uh, which it was it was kind of my point before about the 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 thing that sort of binds modernity together is this all of these utterly naturalistic presumptions uh, and and assumptions and you see this in biblical exegesis as well exactly you know the, the Jesus could not possibly really multiply physically loaves and fishes it was the miracle of sharing there's the real miracle right, right there the, what's the, thing the miracle about, yeah. it's the miracle of it is that which I think it was which one was it the which one of the medievals called uh, miracles, prima natura, first nature, which yeah. I always love that miracles. Right. Um, but the thing about the loaves that I was teaching my students is, is brilliant because he doesn't use uh, delivery. He doesn't just magic up food. He uses right. yeah, the exactly. natural yep. elevated. Likewise, yeah. there are two rubs on this <laughs> to quote the bard. Um, he walks on water. He doesn't float above it. Exactly. Exactly. And what secularity does when he walks on it, <laughs> it's brilliant. They go, well, why didn't he run? I mean, nothing's enough for humans. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Well, he That sounds like a Monty Python skit. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, why is he? They couldn't run, eh? <laughs> yes. All right. That's I, I, but can I, can I just... Just like the fish after resurrection. That's It's the same... It's a same it's the other well, way around, just exactly, and and I mean the the thing. So right, which which points to right. Like I, I read, there was this great line. I, I've I've just been reading, you know, the City of God, and I'm I it's it, and I'm almost done with with the with it. Wow! But there's this brilliant. There's this brilliant line where Augustine and and here you could quote a bunch of other people who say similar things, but it's sort of like he talked about the God who created the world and then liberated it from corruption. So, right, it's sort of Connor's point that it's, it's like, like Athanasia says, right, the point of the miracles is to show that the Redeemer is the creator. But yeah. that, that, that sort of suggests a, a, another dimension of this, which is implicit in what we've been saying, which is that um, precisely God has something to do with the physical world from the get-go yes and 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 so the point the point that so and and this takes us then back to our kind of science and religion stuff 
that it's it's not that you know naturalism actually delivers nature um it's not that um and 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 then and then so we have that and then we have to sort of plead as theologians or plead as christians for for crumbs from the table right, right? um it's it's that it's that there's a the 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 concreteness of um the world that the sort of full actuality of nature comes to light you know in the presence of god yeah right yeah and i mean i have to say this something i you know connor over the years has really helped me to see that that the burden of proof right is is exactly the opposite of where we think it is yep yeah it's exactly yeah. the opposite of where we think it is, right? And I think that's something that Chesterton really understood so well as well. Yes. Yeah. And Schmemann. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And that's the truth, because there, there are sort of, yeah, I mean, I think that um, on the one hand, the, 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 the linguistic retreat into the ghetto of theology, but it's only self-referential, is a plague on that house. And the yeah. other hand, the deferential the crumbs, the deferential approach obsequious right. towards science, it's fool's gold because you're not gonna you're not gonna find anything to be deferential to. Yet the third the third aspect that those if you actually ignore all this and actually look at some practices of science, exactly. Exactly. you will find real magic there. Yeah. Exactly. I mean real, real cause for wonder. If you circumvent the ideologies, the science and the religions, exactly, almost do an imminent analysis, exactly, in a Bondelian sense, in that sense. And as you look at the, what can I told us, you know, condensed matter physics or something like that, you think, "Wow, this is just nuts." Exactly, it's fantastic, and yeah. it it summons wonder. So if exactly. you actually look at how it actually plays itself out, not necessarily how it articulates itself in posters or in conference things, right. but actually in its imminent practice exactly. you will see you will see so much there to be to be beholden to i mean exactly. it's beautiful. I, I i don't want to put you on the spot connor but could you could you give us an example of what you're talking about where if if, if let me, let me just, for your viewers let me give you a quick historical thing because what can i notice but maybe people don't know come to example back to my p45 so <laughs> in america for example there was a, just to give you because people really know what science is these days so it's just good to give a quick skinny so for example you physics is like the master discourse nowadays right and then you know chemistry and biology are sort of cousins in the countryside and um but the physics are, are, are the posh people and then it's they're divided into two apartheid groups which is the high energy and low energy right so in the 80s in america there was a um a huge fight between two nobel laureates one high energy laureate one low energy laureate one was Philip Anderson and the other one was Weinberg, Stephen Weinberg, right? And they had a huge fight over the funding for their your collider. You're going to have a, a hydro collider like we have in, in Switzerland and, you know, now. And Anderson came in and uh, fought against it. And Weinberg came in the other side. It went to congressional. You can actually buy a book on it. It went to con Congress all the way. And Anderson won. And you guys don't have your collider as the one you wanted. Anyway, yeah. that was a huge divide. Because the high energy physics, they were the aristocrats, and they thought they were going to come up with a theory of everything. 
and really anything you did entailed them. They were they were the, the king, and Anderson was having any of it. And then, but but even though they lost that fight throughout the nineties, especially all string theorists and all these types of high energy physics got all the kudos, all the money. Mm. They got all they got the tenure, they got the research leave, they got everything because they were the daddy, they were Elvis, they were the king. <laughs> and then what you had is there was there was further Indonesian warfare, not between <laughs> low energy and high energy, but within high energy, where everyone sort of woke up one day with a really big hangover and went, you just had 15 years of billions of pounds and tons of kudos and tenure and research. And, and they went there and there was nada. Mm. And that became then not the war between low and high energy, but called the string wars. Wow. And there was huge internecine warfare. And then what happened after the third tranche, if you like, the third chapter is that string theory and quantum loop and all went, right, what are we going to do with this, lads? Because we, we actually, the cupboard is actually literally bare. There isn't any object, Larry. And so they thought, flip me. And here goes back to our P45, the unemployment ticket. They came back down to earth and used themselves as what's called a toolbox to analyze condensed matter physics. And these very intelligent people and their thoughts actually found application in the lab looking at stuff. And it was actually was able to reveal this back to your point, your question, Larry, incredible aspects of matter we just did not know and which our fictions had been built upon erroneous impressions that matter was inert that matter was simple, that matter was a given, that matter was static, that matter was whatever, dull. And what they find with different techniques is that all manner of what they call themselves, not me, this is not my term, exotic phases of matter became apparent. And lo and behold, our entire understanding of matter for the last 300 years was thrown out of the window. Wow! It became more exotic, more mad than any miracle right. it's just i mean it's just crazy what's happening in the labs now it, it from high energy superconductors semiconductors to um quantum phases of matter uh it's just mad i'm i'm and what can i talk about this and i'm not quite sure about this and i totally believe in it don't mean that i'm wondering is our is our is our surprise at it so i'll give you an example if you if you have matter right and you have thermal energy, yeah, just the, the heat and stuff, you know, latent energy and all that. If you turn that down, right, if you dampen it, what becomes apparent, all manner of birds coming fluttering out, and you start to see matter in whole new ways that you can't see unless you turn the volume down, in this case, temperature. Mm. So the thermal fluctuation, the energy goes to zero, and suddenly matter discloses itself in such exotic, elegant ways that mm. defy all our logic. Wow. So, for example, the way it went through with semiconductors, for example, you had something called BCS and Cooper Perry. That was the first thing of semiconductors, which is really cool. But it was a bottom-up way of thinking. Then you had the Russian lad, Lando, who's brilliant, who Stalin actually stuck in prison, and then he, he put his other scientists to work on it, and the scientists went, mate, I can't do it without that lad in prison. So he got Lando out of prison after a year, thank goodness. And uh, he invented Lando symmetry breaking, and then it, it, the you know spontaneous symmetry breaking, which explained matter in so many ways to the point that scientists there's a top down, and scientists went flip me, this is magic, 
And it's so successful, they all thought, this, this must explain everything. But no, it was only the beginning. Back to turning the temperature down, what you have now is a huge growth in in uh, completely bizarre forms of matter, bizarre to us, uh, bizarre forms of matter, which are called topological phases of matter, where there's no, there's no, we think of a base, like matter is down here, but no, it's long-range correlations, so it's, it's globally dominated. The shape of the matter is dominated globally, not particulate down here. And this dictates the shape of matter. Right. So it's working at a meta level just to manifest the matter in this way. And they realized right. they had to go beyond symmetries because the symmetries that these topological orders, phases of matter, are different to the symmetries. So it's beyond Lambo. It's just getting crazier. So the myth that matter is inert, the myth that matter is simple, the myth that matter is explained is nonsense. My only, my only misgiving is that I said to Walker a while back, I wonder, is it that just exotic for us? In that I said, I wonder do honeybees, something like the fractional quantum hall effect, which is an example of topological matter. Right. And I'm thinking, well, maybe honeybees just see it all the time, but they find water bizarre. And we <laughs> find water H2O, right. which we shouldn't actually, we should find water bizarre too. But anyway, we, right. do, we tend to domesticate it. But maybe it's an epistemological thing, and I hate epistemology, but uh, it's a very Protestant thing. Um, because <laughs> they, take, they, take, uh, they take solace in epistemology. Uh, they go, oh, yeah, but your epistemology can't prove that. Therefore, we're all right being Protestants. I hate that. Uh, I like metaphysics. <laughs> um, right. Um, of, which, of which epistemological knowledge is a tributary. But right. the reservoir is, is, is first philosophy. Um, yes, I just wonder that. But, yeah, so I think our narratives about science, our understanding, our deference, obsequiousness, okay. and so forth, our ideology of yes. it is completely for the birds. Yeah. If not for the worms. Yeah. And it doesn't exist. That exactly. science that we think exists literally exactly. doesn't exist. That's, that's the key. Can I chime in here? I mean, right, first sorry, of all, Connor, that no, no, Connor, that was brilliant. And that 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 yeah, I mean, I could sit here and listen to you all day. Um, Me too. Yeah. Uh but you know, I actually think that science in that sense has never existed. Not just that it existed, not just that it existed until now and then has been sort of shown by the phenomenon not to have existed. I mean, because it's never been the case. So in other words, that people usually, right, we, we all sort of assume the story, right? There was a scientific revolution in the 17th century and they, they got rid of final causes and the Aristotelian apparatus and finally figured out how to make stuff work. And it's kind of sad maybe that they got rid of the old stuff because it was much more poetic, but the new stuff works and you can't, you can't deny that. Right. So, so we're sort of stuck, but the fact of the matter is that, that the sort of Baconian ideal, if you want to call it that, um, first of all, uh, was never proved. Um, and it's not necessary and never has been necessary to account for reality or for how science or the sciences operate. Um, and it seems to me that, that given that that's the case, we, we should expect that the, the historical record is actually a lot different from that. In other words, that it, it, it actually hasn't been 
this triumphant march of sort of Baconian, you know, knowledge is power, but that in fact, what you, what you're going to find is um, an ongoing debate or set of debates um, between people who maybe think like that um, and other people who uh, disagree either partly or wholly um, and and it's always going to be a sort of and, and then there's going to be like all of the mess of, you know, discovery um, that that sort of oozes through these these kind of airtight compartments that are created. And so so the thing is going to look the thing is going to look like I think all the way through, it's going to look like an analog of what we've got now is all I want to say. Can I just back that up a second? Because yeah. that's one of the things yeah. I think we have a cognitive disposition to fall into that trap. So when yes. I said to you, for example, there's topological things, blah, blah, yeah. blah. I even wrote this the other day, Walker, uh, in that we actually, t we sort of, we sort of, we're quite limited in our thinking there. We, yeah. we do start, we fall into the narrative of thinking, this is a new thing. Right. Rather than right. disclosing that, embarrassingly, we've been wrong for centuries. Exactly. If not forever. <laughs> right. And there've always been all these people within the guild even itself who, have kind of seen holes in the emperor's clothes or, or seen that there are right. In other words, so, so like, for example, like modern biology, right. We, we, it's not, it's by no means all this sort of reductionistic stuff. I mean, I don't mean just what stuff that's coming to light now, but I just mean, you know, there've always been these figures who have sort of said, Hey, wait a minute. You know, and they've all been like, like, like somebody like uh, what's his name, like Conway Morris or whatever, or Morris Conway, right? Yeah, Conway Morris, yeah, right, right. There've always there've always been these people who are like, wait a minute, yeah. I'm glad you brought up Conway Morris, man. I haven't heard that you know, name like in a Connor, while. What are you going to say, Connor? Go ahead. I was saying Goethe. Goethe was already a prophet for that. Well, Goethe, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you beat me to it. I was going to bring him up as, as a perfect example of what Adrian's talking about here, going all the way back. But is there not at the same time, let's just put it this way, on, just on the level of popular perception, uh, even among academics, even amongst and perhaps precisely amongst academics, uh, that there that science is, in fact, uh, channelized according to certain certain well-established models, you know, Big Bang Theory, Neo-Darwinism, String Theory, whatever, and that this is where all the money has flowed, and that's why these things have become sort of standard models. But it's been my, I, I interviewed a guy last week, Mark Stallman. Adrian, you know Mark Stallman. Yes, um, he's great. It was a fascinating interview with Mark. Mark knows a lot about digital technology and about science and these issues. Uh, but he pointed out that precisely the problem that we're seeing on this level of modern science is simply perceived in the popular consciousness is that it has all been thrown into crisis, that all of the standard models have been thrown into crisis. And I think oh, yeah. this is sort of what Connor's bringing up as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, oh yeah. I mean, what can I be talking about? So we've been working on something, but uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is what the window dressing and the window are two different things. Right. I mean, when you look through the window, it's completely, I don't mean Christ. I mean, I love it. I just don't like its ideology. And I right. don't like the public right. perception of it. Right. And I don't right. like theologians' right. perception of it. Exactly. I mean, I was in a viva yesterday examining someone's PhD. And the, the external examiner beside me, she said, oh, the beginning, she said, well, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm working on this thing. Blah, blah. 
I said I'm doing stuff in physics or whatever it was. And this theologian turns out, who specialist in the Eucharist or something, turns out to me and says, so do, oh, you, you have a science degree then? <laughs> and I went, yeah, exactly. No, I don't. I'm self-taught. I, I, I'm an autodidactic. No. <laughs> but that was the cultural response. Exactly. I mean, the, 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 the point is scientists don't know what they're doing. Exactly. And also they don't quite know often know how they're doing it. Exactly. And because of those two lacks, they kidnap it and stick it into silos where it does not belong. Exactly. Because it's easier to cater to it. It's easier to, to manage exactly. it. In that exactly. Sense. And as for crisis, uh, I mean, that's one thing. It's back to the quantum field thing. I mean, it's so hidden from the public right. how much they right. just don't know and how much, right. how much even that which Walker talks about working, they don't know why it works exactly. or how it works. Exactly. I mean, right. but there's right. a pretense that they do for funding purposes, for public exactly. perception. It's a it's a posturing. Exactly. And again, exactly. I stress, I love it all. I just don't like its presentation. Exactly. Yeah. And and the thing is, and it's true. I mean, I'm sure that that it will it would be part of, you know, a sort of good historical account of the last three or four hundred years to highlight the fact that there is a kind of persistent tendency to baconize, you know, and then to sort of present, you know, science in these sort of inflated terms and all of that. My point is just that um, it's important to acknowledge both the factical influence of that baconianizing hype and at the same time not to concede that it's ever managed to colonize things completely because if we do that then we're we're basically uh capitulating to it we're basically saying that oh yeah actually um it can it, the, the magicians who don't know how their magic tricks work actually can do all of this and they actually do know how it works and reality might actually really be like that i mean so I, I think I think it's really important. Um, so it's it's not about sort of being optimistic or being positive, right? Because people say, oh, you know, don't be a tech doomer, you know, don't be down on science and everything. I mean, uh, that that may be true, right? That, and there may be reasons for not being like that. But the point that I'm making is not so much that it's it's that if you if you do embrace a kind of um, sort of doom narrative that it's just all been bacon all the way down for, you know, for the last 400 years and that's it. How do you not then end up agreeing that that kind of Baconianizing ideal is actually correct? Because if it's that powerful and really goes all the way down like that and just dominates everything, you know, every, every waking minute, then how is it not, how is it not cleanly replaced reality? Right. Well, could I just come in because because it it didn't work exactly. That's what I'm saying. Never, That's what I'm saying. Never, it was worked. still it was still born before it was born. It was, yeah. it was just ideology and the removal of, as you say, Aristotelian apparatus, you know, final and formal. That was just pretense. It was never Precisely. removed. It was never. You can't. You yeah, can't. It's impossible. 
there's no efficacy without finality. And there's no, and there's there's no scientist. Exactly. Well, just look at and the reigning. Look at some of the reigning sort of writings among the, the neo-Darwinists. Leon Cass pointed this out in his book Toward a More Natural Science, where he points out that uh, Darwinian biologists simply cannot avoid the language of teleology, no matter how hard they try to expunge teleology from their descriptions of how evolution works. It always has this tendency to slip in through the back door again. Well, you, you can't because the point is, I mean, something that that's really become very clear to me, and I maybe I've said it in in one of my previous appearances here. I mean, it's literally true 100% of the time that there's no efficacy without finality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. I mean, Absolutely. it's it's as simple as that. Or formal. Or, or formal, right. I mean, for, for, for the same, for, for similar yeah. reasons. Well, all the causes hang together, right? You take one away, they all fall apart. Y yes, but, 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 but the, but the, the, because the 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 sort of bake the the kind of baconianizing mode sort of rests on the assumption that there's such a thing as processes that sort of you know um are driven forward say by a kind of deterministic causality yeah that, that can be that can exist um and be ordered and be understood completely apart from any consideration of, of form or finality. And that's just simply not true. And so, and so the point is that, that that can't work on its own terms and never has worked on its own terms and never could be an explanation of how anybody discovered anything under the it's banner of modern science. It's precisely because too, I mean, it's, it's a mistake to then say, well, what Baconian science was about was it just emphasized efficient causality and got rid of the other cause. No, it, it's not even about efficient causality in the classical sure. sense of what we mean. Sure. And so right. what your point is, Adrian, I think is well taken, that even on the level of the sort of ba Baconian notion, it, it, it barely rises to the, to, to the level of a description of a real cause, which is why it's never really been very effective. Uh, you know, it, as an as an explanatory well, this tool. Another, right. This is an implication that that I mean, efficient causality, even billiard ball, what they call billiard ball causation is about communicating being. Bingo. It's not primarily about pushing something and forcing it to do something. Well, hey, Hauser, do you have two cents? No, just I was just going to say that this goes this kind of takes us back to the beginning of the conversation when you talk about. The, the attempt to mathematize reality is precisely to abstract Adrian from all the other things that are happening when we see something like a purely mechanistic cause, right? You you have to bracket off so much stuff to talk about that, that you're, that, but you can't really in reality do that, right? Yeah. So you're, you're always importing, it's kind of like the, the, the historical critical scholar of the Bible trying to be simply a historical critical scholar. He never succeeds in doing that because there's always... It, 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 he's always oh. backloading in stuff that is that is not. Yeah. His yeah. And, and even mathematics is teleological because there's a direction. Yeah. There's yeah. a direction. Yeah. Yeah, Without yeah. a doubt. I mean, we shouldn't make enemies here. I mean, mathematics is beautiful and it's a beautiful Absolutely. Yeah. It's glorious. And we shouldn't blame the tool for how it's used. No, right. Not at all. Not at likewise, all. likewise, mechanism. Because if you look how a mechanism works, it entails much more abundance absolutely and again the straw version of mechanism 
So we got to be careful what we set up as enemies because these I aren't agree. enemies. I yeah. agree. They're actually allies. It's just the way they're presented yes. seems to be it generates the full animosity. Can yeah. I address mechanism this? Can be really sexy. No, there, can I say? Nothing... <laughs> I, can I say something about that? I'm so, sorry to interrupt, but this is just so exciting. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to shut up, but it's, it's, especially it's, you're talking about sexy mechanisms and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just... I think there's two different things here, right? <laughs> um, but both of which can both of which can be retrieved. So one of them is. The analogy between think between machines and 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 natural entities, right? Um, so there's so um, so first of all, machines are are wonderful, and um, there's something really illuminating about the about the analogy between machines and 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 natural processes, right? If you know what you're doing, as Connor says, right? If you know how to present these things. But then the other thing, I, I think at the at the core of me, kind of mechanism is the the sense that causality, efficient causality, is is a form of of necessitation, mm. right? And um, uh, and and this just raises, but th this raises another set of this raises another thing that I think. Is is retrievable, which is that, um, you know, both both Plato and Aristotle, uh, in different ways, um, say that that uh, there's a, a positive relationship between the good and the necessary. So, you know, so Plato, for example, in the Phaedo, right, sort of talks about how there's the good, and then sort of that which out without which the good can't be realized, right. And, and Aristotle has a magnificent discussion in book two of the physics about teleology and necessity. Um, and it th there's this beautiful mystery in the fact that uh, the realization of the good um, depends on things, right? That, that, and, and, and therefore um, uh, requires certain things that that have to be given right um and it seems to me that that in their having to be given right um you have the matrix of what we think of as mechanical necessity or deterministic necessity mm -hmm. right so you can retrieve even that right and you can see it as as part of this kind of mysterious you know kenosis of the good which just part of its goodness and all of that. But even us, even as humans, I mean, we're taught to pray for our daily bread out of yes. necessity. Totally, totally. And, and uh, totally. I also point out to some of my uh, more evangelical students that talk about, oh, yes, but, you know, man does not live by, you know, bread alone, you know, but by the word every word that proceeds. Right. Right. I go, yeah, man does not live by bread alone, but bread as well. Exactly, exactly. No, that... That's the thing. I I think this. You, yeah, it it applies all the way up and down. I, I mean, right. that's and you can see the there's a symptom of our cultural malaise, because again, I don't think it's the tools. I think it's the humans who are are contorting what is right. actually occurring right. before our eyes. Right. So we're making right. it into the porn movie that it is, right. the ideological porn movie, 
right. which of course right. is going to be a fiction because porn's a fiction. Ideologies are a fiction. Right. All these things actually don't exist in real life. That's right. Literally, they don't. That's right. Um, there's no porn star. No porn stars ever existed in the world. It's a person <laughs> pretending to be something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Science pretending to be something. Yeah, a mechanism right. pretending to be mechanistic in some pretended way. Exactly. Yeah, us pretending we don't need daily bread. Right. I mean, it's rubbish. Yeah. It's exactly. just rubbish. We, we get above ourselves and think we're angels. Um, That's it. But, I mean, it's yeah. even even the questions that, you know, Walker and I have been talking about before, but you, you'll hear, I just think that the academy and theologians, philosophers just bark up so many wrong trees. I mean, yeah. Walker and I have been talking about things like reduction and emergence. I mean, they're just both rubbish terms. I mean, they're, they're just rubbish. I mean, you talk about crises, Larry, and um, let's say someone says you in a class, right? Or say it goes, well, do you think, you know, is there such a thing as emergence, right? And then you have all this debate. <laughs> it's just, it's so embarrassing. I think I'm going to go red, actually. I mean, we know that the standard model is emergent. So the, the most successful physics model is emergent. <laughs> yes. Space time is emergent. So anything you'd reduce one emergent to another is already you're reducing one emergent to another emergent. Emergent, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you end up this massive functionalism in in physics, where it's really funny because it replicates Descartes. This is oh, this is really fun. So you end up having space time as the res cogitans because it's the emergent, and something underlying which is the more final theory which is the res extensa, and never the twain shall meet. So we get this Cartesianism replicated in physics. Yeah. So when someone yeah. says to you, is there emergent? Well, I think, well, um, we're here, aren't we? I mean, it's just <laughs> nonsense. There's no such thing as a reductive base, right. quite literally. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> it's so emergent all the way down? Emergent, is that what All the way down. So yeah, to yeah. say there's something, is something emergent, is it ready to sup with the devil? Right, right. You've given up the ghost, if you like, already because you're bought into a bad rubric, a bad grammar of yeah. actually how to approach the question. Yeah, that I mean, there was just, this time when there wasn't anything emergent, but then something emerged out of this non-emergent baseline reality that doesn't really have any reality. But they can't have a non-emergent because of the Big Bang, for example. So how, how are we going to have a non-emergent? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And after all, what I was saying, you know, one of the quips I try to sum it up with, you know, no boom, no bang. So we don't know. It's back to Aristotle and Plato. We don't say, say you got some a quark, right? Whichever flavor, a quark. Well, the quark doesn't know what it's, until there's a boom, I a tree rocks up or a planet or a star or whatever. It ain't nothing yet. Just in potency. So without the boom, there ain't no bang. A whimper. Right. The only retrospectively, retroactively, can we say, oh, those quarks were pretty sexy. They were right. able to do all these palm trees, like in Florida. They don't know whether there's a bang because of the boom. And they go hand in hand. Exactly. Like form and matter. And they are never the twain, Jimmy, because they are principles in that sense. And also, if you think about it, there's nothing more reductive than theology. Creation right. ex nihilo. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, yeah. even even on our anthropology, the name of your uh, podcast, for example. I mean, you got form and matter as two co-principles. Principles. 
which are reducible or rather have the anchor in the actus ascendi. Without that, they're pre- they, they come into actuality through the act of being. Right. So in that sense, form and matter essence are reducted, reduced to that act. Yeah. So reduction yeah. is exactly also emergent or creation. Right. So the yeah. terms we're using are we're doing so in a crude manner, and we're actually doing it through borrowed ideologies. We're not actually being innocent on how we're looking at it right. and standing right. back. I mean, creation ex nihilo, that's reductive in spades. Yeah. And but you but you, you remove the inferences. Yeah. You you yeah, yeah. punch them. Exactly. Sorry. No, I was gonna just I was just thinking about what you said about quarks as well. And there's another way in which you see an interplay of the reductive and the emergent, because so on the one hand, you know, the the potency isn't going to be sort of crystallized in the direction of quarks unless there's a hole that comes into being with a kind of, you know, entirety of actuality. And yet that whole depends on uh, its parts, you know, and whatever is part-like in it. Um, and uh, there's something beautiful about that, about that dependence as well. Right. So, um, and, and there's a kind of, but and there's a kind of reductio there. I mean, and so may, maybe part of the problem is, a not seeing that um that the core meaning of reductio is being led back to a principle that lets be mm-hmm. rather than sort of absorbs tyrannically but also that that uh there there j- just as there are you know different kinds of causing there are different kinds of reductio right that there is a way that the whole can be reduced to its matter because the whole depends on it just like there's a way that the 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 parts can be reduced to the whole because Absolutely. they won't be crystallized in that way unless there's a hole for them to be crystallized exactly. as parts of well, and so I'll, on. I'll, I'll give you one example of that. Uh, and it walked I've taught this before. Think about a cork, right? You see, this is we really there's so many elephants in the room and we just don't spot them. And we say, like, <laughs> shall we reduce the whole to the parts, right? But right. the parts themselves are right. Take a cork. Right, a yeah, quark right, is already a type. Have you heard of right, molecular turnover? Right. Do you know what molecular turnover is? You know the way no. if I meet you in three years, Larry, not one atom of you will oh, remain. Yes, yes, exactly. Molecular okay. turnover. Well, yes. just take that logic and transfer it to the particulate. Any quark is a type. It's a yeah. it's a form. Yeah. Which is only filled, the sails of which are filled by that which comes in and that which leaves, allowing yeah. it to be quark. The quark is already a, a, so that which you reduce to think, oh, it's big base part, is already a form. Yeah. And the form only is when it's actualized by the parts that enter in its molecular turnover. It's particulate turnover in this case. Yeah. There's no such thing as a particle in the way we generally understand it at all. Right. Demonstrably so. But we are so stupid that we don't understand that. (laughs) There's, you can't find a quark. Right. A quark will always be a type exactly exactly Exactly. and there's no quark outside the type exactly exactly yeah it's it's, it's, other types yeah no because it's sort of like because it so when people say the quark they don't mean this little chunk of stuff here you can't you can't mean that because you couldn't identify it 
if you if you just meant the chunk in a sort of abstract way, you could never identify it. Exist. It's better to use to borrow the term from chemistry. Do you know this term? You probably. Uh, it's a better thing of quark as an affordance. Yes, precisely, precisely. That's it. So whichever flavor a quark is, or a muon, or a, or a, whichever or an anion. Anions are very interesting, by the way, guys. Back to the fractional Coulomb flow effect. They're compressed fermions, and they do all the sexy topological stuff. But anyway, uh, but do we only know them because of what they're affording? It's about yeah. affordance. So we only retroactively go, oh, there's a that flavor of quark. There's that flavor of quark. There's a muon. There's a because exactly. it's affording us a certain behavior. Exactly. It's a particular level. And the best way of sobering up in this way, and I know that students make this a very hippie thing, but I actually think there's a lot of truth to this in William Blake's, you know, um, innocence, uh, auguries of innocence, you know, uh, infinity in my hand, uh, you know, you know that poem right. of his. If yeah. you actually look at it, you've got it right. Mm. Because we think Everest is really high and a quark is really small, but that's not true metaphysically. You know, it it is, that's us being parochial and colloquial. I don't think Everest is any bigger than a quark. It big be a value axiological thing. Right. 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 Yeah. I, I, I just don't think it is, but we tend to be obsessed by the very small or short distance and actually deem it more important. And then the big be sort of gross and reducible to this is very small. It's right. just nonsense. Right. I mean, it's it's it, it is infinite grain of or ten, what is it infinite yes. grain of sand or whatever it is. Um, yes. it, it's definitely there. I mean, you look at it and you do have. I mean, Borges is good in this too. Uh, uh, the, the Argentinian writer. Um, it and they're definitely onto something. And it's just our perspectivalism, a parochialism. Here, epistemological, epistemology, uh, that that traps our imagination. Yeah, you know, I I think I mean a, a guy who in 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 modern thought who really understood that well. Although, again, I think you just need Plato, Aristotle, and Aquinas to really work it out. Is Leibniz right? I mean, yep. everything is intermirrored and in everything else. Yeah, that's exactly it. Leibniz says it quite clearly. Yeah, uh, quite clearly. Um, and he's got some beautiful passages on that. Yeah, really yeah, he's beautiful. wonderful on that. Yeah. Um, um, and, you know, it, yeah. it also reminded me, Connor, when you were talking, I, it just reminded me of this, another wonderful passage in, uh, you know, book 22 of On the City of God, in which Augustine is sort of, you know, is answering these objections posed by the pagans to the notion of the resurrection, right? Because if you... Book 22 you, is very important. Yeah, if you think of it, if you think of it in a sort of too crude way, obviously, you know, you 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 do run into some absurdities, right? And he's showing that no, no, you don't have to think of it in that too crude way, but yet it's it's very physical, it's very real, you know. Um, but what one of the things that he says in that context, which is is exactly along the uh, kind of lines of what you're saying, is he sort of seems to be thinking of of matter sort of in itself as something that's ready to uh, play all of the different parts that are required of it. Yeah. And, and that's really the point. So that, so that when we're talking about, you know, the hand or the brain or the quark or the gene or whatever it is, I mean, it's not that we're not talking about something that um, is embodied or is body-like somehow. I mean, even if only just in the imagination, but um, uh, 
we're we're we're, we're but but we're but we're talking about precisely something that's embodied, namely um, a, a form and a function, right? Uh, and the function has to do with the form, and the form has to do with the function. Um, and and so, so that behind that, so that ma matter in its core is this readiness. It is the Platonic receptacle. I mean, Plato even says in the Timaeus, right? It's not that he says, he says the receptacle um, is, is not, it's not, it's, it's even prior. It's not the elements. It's not even the elements, the elements are the receptacle yet. Right. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's already there waiting for the dance. Exactly. It's already, exactly. even in, in, in all to the pericratic notion of dance etymologically, it's already waiting for that. And it's desiring form, as Aquinas clearly says. Exactly. Uh, and it exactly. also is a co-principle of form. And also, back to the Bakunian thing, you were saying about brain-like, quark-like. Right. You better always, right. because of the Bakunian thing, if they were consistent, they'd only end up with aggregation. Exactly. And you, right. you wouldn't get your brain or your you hand or everything. Precisely. And you're actually, back to affordances, you're better talking about quarking. Right. And handedness. Exactly. Exactly, and, and, and bring this, and exactly. because because if you sped it up, it's already dynamic. We just don't see it in the parochial terms. Exactly. It's already molecular turn. Everything's changing, but the form is keeping it a non-identical repetition. That, that, that's that's it, and that's that's really what you just said illuminates, for example, why Aristotle seems to identify being and form, mm. right. It's 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 not about some preference for, um, you know, the the purely invisible over the visible or something like that. It's exactly what you're saying. It's that it's the it's the handing, thanks to which, um, the 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 potency of matter can can be manifesting itself as yeah. a hand ongoingly. And that, in that's why he, but that's why he Aristotle. He talks about and Aquinas Foy. That's why there's no corpse, and that's Precisely. why a severed, that's why a severed hand is no hand at all. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. And so, it's, and it's because for Aristotle, there's no such thing as matter in the way that we have presumed there is. Precisely, that's right, right. It's exactly that's right. that. That's exactly right. But right. In other words, it's back to your point about the mythical base. Right. It's not an already formed or half formed something uh on which everything else is resting right it's not that at all it's it's exactly it's exactly the thing that comes into view as this kind of dynamic solidity thanks to the handingness or the brainingness or the geningness or the quarkingness or whatever it is all affordances yeah. all affordances yeah. because the dance of two co-principles cool exactly under yeah. the under the mandate under the <clears throat> the patronage of an actus ascending that's what it is exactly which that's is another is. kind of letting be of the whole as well as a pulling of everything together and and speaks to the fecundity of yes. things uh the giftedness of things and thus uh points towards the mysterious abyss that generates all of this uh, yeah. I, I mean, I can't help but think of what little I know of Ferdinand Ulrich's philosophy uh, of gift, that there that there is something here 
uh, with regard to what Plato and Aristotle meant by matter, its its consistency with our notions of form. These are all absolutely stunningly fascinating questions yeah. uh that that stretch the mind to to it to its limit i i know rodney and i are enjoying just sitting back and watching youtube brainiacs go at it here uh this this is just fun as hell i, I gotta say i mean I just, just come back with one thing you're saying about the, the fecundity who would have thought that bread and wine could become body and blood in a sacrament exactly who could who could think that uh two people have sex and a, and a life is born and it grows into a human being, you know, right up to 80 years of age and carries the same person who's who is the same person despite an uncountable change over decades. Exactly. Yet it's still Jimmy or Susie after eight decades. Right. I mean, who could think that matter could be such thus and so? I mean, that's why I said at the beginning that miracles should be thought of as first nature, not as something extrinsic to it, but only as a, a disclosing of it, of yeah. its source yeah. and its finality. Exactly. Well, yeah, and, and go ahead. Go ahead. I was Connor. just thinking also liturgy back to sacraments. This is what always struck me. And back to the body, you were saying, uh, I've always thought that the body, metabolism, circadian clock, the seasons, and so forth are the litur are analogous to the liturgy and the liturgical yeah. calendar, which has all three modalities of time simultaneously. It doesn't work in secular right. time. The, the departed are included, the yet to be are included, and the presence included, and the circadian met metabolism of the liturgy throughout proper time is actually speaks to biological time, chemical time, and physical time, because it's actually liturgy is actually a metaphysics. It's a disclosing. Yeah. When you have the sac the Eucharist, right? It ain't something religious. It's a revelation of what is and why it is. And if yes. you're going to use your your uh, your Larry, I don't know if you're over there on the left, you, the, the 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 name of your podcast is exactly that, right? Because if Christ is revealing man to himself, right? Surely then right. Christ revealing himself in the sacrament is revealing creation to itself. Yes, yes. This yes. is our metabolism, our yep. circadian clock, and so forth. And I think sport can be like that too. Actually, the strange form of liturgy of physics. Yeah. I mean, okay. yeah. No, Rodney, go ahead. Yeah, no, just the, the I, I was thinking about this in terms of this, you know, they always do these surveys periodically to find out how many Catholics believe in the real presence or whatever. And and, the, and they get these, you know, very, very bad you know numbers back. You know, 75 percent of Catholics don't believe Christ is present in the Eucharist. And then so our, our bishop, God bless him, he's a great guy, but he, he means well, but he's very upset about this. So he's trying to have these like, you know. Uh, blitzkrieg sort of events to try to you know tell, have people teach the people you know what it means to say that Christ is present, and and precisely what you guys are talking about is the problem. It, it's it's not so much that the people can't believe in the miraculous; it's that they think that that nature is this really dull, lifeless thing in itself, right? So so in other words, well that's just bread and wine. How can it be the body? And, and the point you want to say is no, it's not just bread. It, it's life giving. By its so nature, get, it's just get rid of the word "just." Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. That's right. right. It's already. Uh, um, wow! It's bread and wine. Yes, yes. <laughs> right. That's where they don't have. Well, it, it goes to <laughs> Rodney. That goes to Schmemann's point. You know that when God created water, He created it for baptism first. <laughs> that, that's what Connor said. <laughs> yeah. it, it reveals the meaning of what it is. Yeah. You know, in it. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, uh, Rodney, when you when there's incredulity amongst the flock as such. Yeah. I, you know, my yeah. students and stuff, I go, well, if you're incredulous about 
uh, bread and wine, right? Being a real presence uh, and so forth. Well, yeah, but then I'm going to have the same Eucharistic problem with you. Because <clears throat> you're then on that register only atoms and molecules. I don't think you have a real presence, Jimmy or Susie. Right. So That's they right. are becoming That's a right. So humans become a spam, if you're going to mention him, an anthropomorphism to themselves, and they're actually guilty of a form of docetism. Yeah. Uh-oh. Everybody's frozen. Molecules. Here. Okay. So that's just, just, just bread and wine. Jimmy, you're just molecules, mate. Let's go Zwinglian on you. Zwinglian metaphysics. And I'm here with Flannery O'Connor. <laughs> I'm with Flannery O'Connor on this. If it's just symbolic, to hell with it. Right. Because right. the Zwinglian metaphysics will spread from the Eucharist to our anthropology. Yes. Right. Yep. Yes. You know, what's interesting about that Flannery O'Connor that Flannery right. O'Connor quote, when when Flannery got done saying, if it's assembled, then to hell with it. Uh, she said that was all the defense I was capable of. But I realize now that this is all I will ever be able to say about it outside of a story, except that it is the center of existence for me. All the rest of life is expendable. That that part of her quote about if it's just a symbol that to hell with yeah. it is always sort of left off. And that is that. In reality, the only thing that she cares to know about it is that it is the totalizing explanation of her life, that, that the, 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 the reason why the Eucharist is more than just a symbol, even though it is a symbol, is precisely as it penetrates to her core and explains absolutely everything about everything. Well, it's a symbol yeah. in the Greek sense. Yes, yes exactly. A, a symbol. Yes. Diabolical. It, it, the Greek sense of putting together, absolutely, but then it puts together something real. <laughs> so, so something really is put together, just yes. like a human is put together, knit together, as it says in the scriptures, knit together in the womb, and so forth. And I just think, I think the congregation, that the flock, the, par the parishioners, if they want to be incredulous about the Eucharist, they're going to be equally as incredulous about themselves. Yeah, if it's yep. just bread and wine, they're just atoms. Yep. And, you know, just 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 a kind of a side note. Right. I mean, you know, uh, sometimes the doctrine of transubstantiation is presented both by friends and foes as if it meant that uh, there was a kind of um, that 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 sort of like the, the one substance gets removed and then replaced with another substance. Um, only now the, the natural connection between substance and accidents is missing. And so you have this new substance with this, the screen of, of the old accident formed by the old accident sort of floating yeah. above. And I mean, um, I think what you have to say is both that um, the, that, that in a certain sense, the unity between the accidents of bread and wine and the substance of Christ's body and blood in one way is even closer and more intimate than the relationship between the substance of the bread and the wine and its accidents. That that's the point. So in other words, yes, there's a, there's a way in which the accidents are upheld by the risen Lord, who is a life-giving spirit. Right. And he's sort of upholding things uh as a as a vehicle of his own most personal self-gift absolutely so um and and that that that's right 
but there's even an analog to that in the relationship between substance and accidents in the in the in in the the nature but yeah. but at the same time uh that that th there's a kind of uh sort of pneumatic hyper inherence of the accidents in the self-giving person um who who's able to be wholly present in all of them and in each in each part of them um in in a way that that build that sort of fulfills the way in which a substance is normally um in its essence wholly present in all all of the 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 all of its accidents and in the in and in each of them right um in a kind of in a kind of self-giving gesture already on the natural level yeah absolutely that's beautiful i, I like that i'm going to have to transcribe that some sometime <laughs> put it and then plagiarize it <laughs> what were you saying I'm just wondering, is it the sense then the bread and the wine are actually eminently more wet bread and wine by becoming the sacrament? Yes, yes, yes exactly. That's the point. They already, they already were held through for through for exactly. held together in the verbum. Exactly. Therefore, they, so by being participant in the sacrament, they're becoming more natural. Exactly. Exactly. It's kind of like, I mean, it's 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 sort of like um yeah, I mean, so so another way of putting, I, I think, the same insight, or at least a, a one that's really related, is it's not an accident that Christ says, "My my blood, my flesh is true food." Mm, you no. can say it's the true food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so in other words, um, the it's it's not it it's not that the bread and wine are annihilated. That right. the, all the the masters of theology say it's not annihilated. Um, in one sense, they cease to exist, but they cease to exist in the way that bread and wine do when we consume them. Right? Yeah. They yeah, get, yeah. Right. So, so it, it, they give way to this new substance, and and lo and behold, this new substance is the true food, and then the accidents of bread and wine are still doing, and even more so, what they always did. Yeah. 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 Which was mediate this nourishing substance, Adrian? Like the, that's the way that I would put. That's the way that I would put it. I don't know, Connor, if you if you would accept. No, that. no, I totally agree with that. I yeah. totally agree with that. I mean, I think that. I mean, you were saying about us eating, you know, consuming, imbibing wine and yeah. eating. It's taken yeah. up into us. And yes, it, and it nourishes us. But yeah. but what's yeah. weird here is it's taken up. Exactly. By its creator. Precisely. Right. Exactly. Who is not the pale imitation of it, but the actual, the reality of it. And exactly. we are only ever at the imitation approaching it. Exactly. Sacramentally, it's finally bread and wine. Yes. Yes. He's the ark. He, both, the as, both as divine word, right? He's the Pani Sangelorum, and in his incarnate form, is the reality of which bread and wine and wheat and grapes were always already uh the 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 substantial the, the sort of not not i mean the, oh the symbol right i mean and and the and the symbolism always worked there through a kind of a sort of 
there's a kind of hidden substantiality that's manifesting itself in the accidents, right? And that very symbolic reality is itself symbolic of him who is the archetype, the archetypal food and drink. And that all be, and that that all comes together in transubstantiation. Because every other food, you know it's only approaching the archetype because every other food, you will eventually still go hungry. Well, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, all, and this food and this food makes us into food. Yeah. Yeah. This mood, this food, it it doesn't Christ doesn't digest us and then and then excrete us. I mean, he turns us into an extension of the living food that he is. Yeah. 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 That's good. Like so the glorified body, Adrian, you could do this all with that too, right? The new heavens and the new earth, right? As as being uh, not the not the annihilation of the old yeah. earth and the old body, right? But the, the 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 it's coming into its own. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I like I like when Marlon talked about uh, with Flannery Cotter. I like Marlon Robinson when she was asked, you know, what she thought about heaven, you know, what she thought it would be like, mm. and she casually answered, like here plus one. Yeah. <laughs> I always love that. <laughs> you don't know what the plan is. It's so ambiguous. It's plus one because it is. Because it's not like red bread and wine will go away, or right. it's not like. But and yeah. plus one, it's so cleverly done because you don't know what plus, what size plus one is. You know, it's it's and, and it's very powerful. Because if it said plus a million, that'd be very small. Yeah. But if I said yeah. plus like here plus one, yeah, it's very potent. It is very potent. It it's very De Lubakian. Uh, like uh, that would be tiny. Yeah. 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 Somewhere De Lubak is smiling down on all of us because, uh, you know, I, I think his theology of nature and grace is 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 sort of animating a lot of a lot of these uh, a lot of these conversations. I tell uh, you, you know, Larry, when I wrote my first book. I started writing it right beside where Delubak started writing Surnatural. Yeah, there wow. you go. I, I knew you were a, a, a Delubak guy, Connor. So uh, right that's why. I, where he, literally a mile from where he started writing it. Wow. And by the time I left, Adrian's mate was three doors up from me, Adrian von Schweier's nephew. Oh, really? Yeah. My wow. Did you, you ever have? The day I met him, I happened to be reading Balthazar's epilogue. And he walked in and introduced himself, and he started talking to me about hair doctor who had spilled coffee over his cassocks or whatever. It was. I remember. <laughs> the party is very patient when he did so. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's absolutely fascinating! Wow. Um, well, we've been at this about a little over an hour. Uh, well, actually, more than that. But that's it's it's just fascinating. But before we get away, and, and I, we can talk for however long you guys want but before well, we, should, we end, we should do a part two i think we should do a part two yeah. uh, and perhaps part two could delve more deeply into how everything that we've said about science and and metaphysics and theology and so forth here today but especially about the its, its significance with regard to this essentialized thing called science that doesn't really exist how does this play out in a university setting what are the what are its impl implications? Go ahead. Should we do it in part two or do you want to do it now? I I, I think part two would be great because that's a big I, I, 
Yeah, let's let's do let's do a part two because, like I said, I mean we've been going at this now about an hour and a half, so maybe that's yeah quite long enough. All right, so I'll, I'll get a hold of all of you guys again, and we'll go from there. Um, but I want to thank Connor especially uh, for for his genius in particular, and for cultivating his genius. Uh, I've been reading and following his stuff for many years from a distance as a great admirer. Adrian, it's always fantastic to hear from you, my friend. I, yeah, and I'm sorry. I, I always sort of end up talking too much, but it's just it's just oh, no. hard to contain oneself, you know, no. and, and people like you guys are inspiring, you know, so it's actually all your fault. Um. <laughs> no, I know. I, I meant when I said Rodney and I were very happy to sit back and watch you two guys uh have this brilliant conversation and i know my viewers and listeners are, i'm going to hear get a lot of emails now tons of emails about how much they they've enjoyed this rodney is always it's great my old buddy my old pal to see you again even with your obnoxious floridian tan going and you're surfing and grouper sandwiches and all that good stuff uh so, so i had to change venues my neighbor started hedging and uh so i had to mute myself and come into the house so i I, oh, well, the turmoil, I, the toil and turmoil in Florida. Exactly. Just People actually work right outside in Florida in the summer. Uh, that's that's yeah, amazing. Yeah, they do. Yeah. All right. Well, stay tuned, everybody, for part two, where we're going to talk about all of this awesome. and its implications for university in a university setting. Thanks to all. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Yeah, you guys are the best. Bye -bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.